Will you pray with me? Lord Christ, you are the God who speaks. I ask that you prepare our hearts to hear your word in this message today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hear these words from the book that we love, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God sent the spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. time is it? Perhaps on this more than any other day of the year, our minds return to this question as we look forward to a new year. The calendar year is coming to a close and we look forward with, with longing, anxiety, hope, and uncertainty to a new year. And the church year is just beginning in earnest with our first season of celebration in Christmas, celebrating God's arrival amid the trials and travails of human life. Time may mean something quite different to each of us depending on our vocation. Those in agriculture may consider it based on what season it is, planting or harvesting or waiting. Those in business may consider it based on the fiscal year and budgetary questions. Are you in the red as the fourth quarter closes or have you ended in the black? Those who work in politics may consider it based on proximity to an election or scandal. Will voters remember this or that? Or what about the donors? Perhaps one might think about it in terms of minutes and hours, working an hourly wage job and struggling to keep up with the bills. Time for such people is quite literally money. Maybe you measure time based on family traditions and holidays. I know that's a major way I experience time, especially during this season of the year. My wife and I have a tradition of playing Monopoly to ring in the new year to remember one of the first nights we started falling for each other. So that's how we'll spend our evening tonight. But no matter what your social location is, the question, what time is it, is of daily importance. But what on earth does Paul mean when he says, when the fullness of time had come? That's a pretty odd thing to say. Surely he is thinking something rather different than anything we usually mean when we talk about time. You see, this is a pretty critical question for Paul throughout his letter to the Galatians. In chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Christ, quote, set us free from the present evil age. And just before this passage, in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, while we were minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of this world. I'm going to be honest with you, friends. No one is really all that sure what Paul means by the elemental spirits of this world, but Whatever, whatever it is, it is certain that it has some sort of spiritual force 
but is opposed to the rule and time of God. These forces have a great deal to do with what Paul is describing this moment as the present evil age. For Paul, here, as everywhere in his letters, there's time is a strange interplay between imprisonment to these forces of evil and the liberation of God that leads to life. The whole cosmos is locked in this struggle. As he says in Romans 8, verse 19, creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Creation has experienced the fullness of time, yes, but yet time is mysteriously not done. The incarnation was the climax of history, but not its completion. God's saving act is not complete. At Christmas, God's radical act of invading history took on flesh. God has always been in the business of saving the world. But in that manger in Bethlehem, that took on a whole new layer of meaning. Amidst the braying of the donkeys, the mooing of the cows, and the agony of a new mother with no modern medicine to speak of, God arrived in what amounts to an ancient barn. But let's take a step back for a moment, friends. Keep in mind, this passage in Galatians is probably the first written account of Jesus' birth, written 10 or 20 years before the Gospels. It has no wise men to speak of, no shepherds. It doesn't even have an angel announcing it. But notice, friends, what it does have. Family. Most obvious is Jesus' mother here called a woman. But far more important is the presence of the family of the Trinity. Not a family in our normal human sense, but the analogy works here. The incarnation is God, Father, Son, and Spirit for us. God sent his Son in order to redeem us and sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts that we might be heirs and children of God. You see, in baptism, God acts to seal us as children in the new covenant, members of the family of God. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ in this strange new economy of childhood and inheritance. Friends, we wait in what Paul calls this present evil age as people marked by a different age, a new time breaking into the now. We are children of the promise breaking into the present. This baptismal promise that we belong does more than just remind us of God's act for us. It is, by God's mysterious will, a real sign and seal of God's desire for and in us. In this passage, Paul proclaims that adoption is not, is some sort of transformative process. We truly become children of God by adoption. He says, because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There is a new heartbeat within us, beating in tune with the Father's love for the world. There is new blood coursing through our veins, washing us from the sins of the past, present, and future, and showing us the son's constant forgiveness. And there is a new breath a new spirit in our lungs, crying out the praises of the Father and the Son, the one God raised up for us, his people. Friends, we are in the midst of the triune God and known and beloved as children. 
I was talking with my wife's aunt a few weeks ago about her parents, my wife's grandparents. She told me so many stories about them and the trials they faced in faith. They're not my stories to tell, but as she finished, she said something that I think I can share with you all. She said, one of the most important things we can do is share our stories with the next generations. And she's right. These stories give us context for how to live in the world, how those who have lived before us have suffered well or poorly, and how they have faced the world in faith, and what we can learn from their mistakes, even. These stories are part of what makes us human, but maybe more than that, they make us a member of our individual families. The same is true of our familial ties with God. We are caught up in the triune family. As heirs, we inherit the kingdom of God with Christ, but maybe more than that, we inherit the stories. As part of the family, we carry the stories of God. We are keepers of the story of liberation and redemption. We are invited again and again to retell and narrate the story of the gospel the good news of Christ for the world today. We are narrators of the story of the fullness of time, of life, liberty, and love. We are called to praise God who has overcome the powers which enslaved the world. As Isaiah says in chapter 62, verse 1, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. We cannot keep silent about the great acts of our God. The eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit invaded history and did a new thing, liberating the captives and setting right all that was broken in the body of Jesus. That is probably the strangest thing that has ever happened. And we often don't sit back and think about how strange it is that God showed up in a human person. But it happened for us and for our salvation. This is a call to praise, friends. God arrived in the impossible place, the virgin's womb, to do the impossible, to free us from our captivity. Is he worthy of our praise? He is. From the heights of the heavens to the depths of the sea, from the earth and all its creatures, from the greatest to the least, God alone is worthy of our praise. As Eugene Peterson's message says in Psalm 40, 148, verses 13 and 14, let us praise the name of God. It's the only name worth praising. His radiance exceeds everything in earth and sky. He's built a monument, his very own people. Praise from all who love God, Israel's children, intimate friends of God, hallelujah. But perhaps more than all of that, this is an impossible salvation. The people of God had always been Israel, the children of Abraham from the beginning up till now. It was a family affair. Yet in the body of this child, all peoples are invited into the promise. As the prophet Simeon held the Messiah, he said, Master, you are now dismissing your servant in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for the glory to your people, Israel. This is a freedom and a salvation for all peoples, all nations. Everyone is invited into this new way of being in the world, brought about by God's freeing us from the powers that bound us. We are free to live life to the fullest, to love without fear, and to proclaim release to those who are still under the power of what Paul calls the elemental spirits. This is the presenting problem in Galatians. The teachers have confounded the Galatians' faith and are convincing them that God is the God of the Jewish people only. And for them to be saved, they must follow the Jewish laws and quite literally become Jews. But Paul, on the contrary, says that God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children. In the mysterious will of God, even those outside the covenant of, with Abraham are included as children. This mysterious inheritance is lived out in the story and the acts of love and liberation. This new heartbeat, blood, and breath do not leave us as we were. They empower us to live and move in the world according to love, forgiveness, and the praise of God. They bring forth acts of spirit-empowered liberation for all, those who are released as children and those who have not been released. This is a proclamation of love that cannot keep silent. We live and move in this family of God for the life of the world, for the life of each other, and for all of creation. Now, for some of us, the holidays are really hard. Perhaps we miss family members who have died or family does not provide the sense of belonging and meaning that we long for. I can't say that belonging in the family of God will fix everything now, and it makes it all right now. It probably doesn't. Those feelings of hurt and longing are important, and it is okay to feel them. But there is truth in the promise that somehow, in the mystery of God, that pain will be bound up and you will find ultimate belonging with the fullness of the people of God when all things are made right. But we live in the between time, the time of the present evil age that remains long after the fullness of time in which God invaded the world and proclaimed life, liberation, and love. We long for God to return. It is good and right to long for God to return, as he promised he would. So what time is it? It is the time of the revealing of the children of God. And someday, somehow, this present evil age will pass away and God will make all things right. In the meantime, we live as children of the promise, living with renewed heartbeats, blood, and breath, bearing in our bodies the triune life. The most important, thing, most important thing about you is that in Christ, you are a child of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.